Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. And we are missing our third co-host today. Uh, we canceled him. He's out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we are joined by Caitlin Stout. Caitlin, do you want to introduce yourself? I would love to. Hello. I am, first of all, so excited about this because CJ and I have been internet friends for like five or six years now, something like that. So I'm really yeah. pumped to like finally be having a conversation face-to-face. But yeah, my name is Caitlin Stout. Um, I am a student at Vanderbilt Divinity School for about four more weeks, uh, about to finish up my Master's of Divinity. Um, Decided to get a concentration in chaplaincy during a global pandemic. Did not know that I would be doing that during a pandemic when I chose that path, but it's been an interesting one. Um, so yeah, my, my background so far has been in hospital chaplaincy. I spent a year uh, doing hospital chaplaincy right before the pandemic hit um, and then transitioned, transitioned into doing some uh, work at a local uh, substance abuse and addiction recovery center doing spiritual care, um, mostly for LGBTQ folks uh, in that context. And I am currently working as a crisis counselor on a suicide prevention hotline. So yeah, it's been a process of figuring out what ministry looks like as a queer person in Tennessee, and it's been a fascinating ride. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that we are actually having a conversation because I've watched you like graduate from college, get into <laughs> divinity school, uh, start dating your current fiance. Yeah. Gra- now you're graduating. It's and never nary a conversation. So I'm real, real excited about this. It feels overdue for sure. Let's just say in, in proper context that 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 comment, CJ, does not seem strange, but uh, also kind of maybe it's like I've just watched you ever since you graduated college, <laughs> and I've just been waiting to have just had to start a podcast for this to happen. So I love it. <laughs> well, we we've, we've been in different states the entire time. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Fair. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we've witnessed a lot of life changes from a great distance, (laughs) but it's been good. Uh, But we had you on because we were interested in hearing about, well, hospital chaplaincy in general, but especially being a queer person in ministry and in chaplaincy, because it's such a, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's not talked about a ton in ministry spaces. Yeah, definitely. And And I think that chaplaincy specifically is such a unique ministry position especially in my context. I I grew up evangelical in the Nazarene church, but I'm currently not affiliated with any denomination. I attend an Episcopal church uh, every now and then, <laughs> but, um, but it's definitely a strange position to be yeah, doing ministry without any sort of denominational backing or, I don't know, it's kind of the uh, the uh, renegade of the ministry world, <laughs> is how I think of it, but it's, yeah, it's definitely an interesting, an interesting thing. Yeah, I I love the idea of chaplaincy for that reason. I think, and across all um, all areas, one of the things that I really hope to do at some point is to work in a in a prison in a chaplain. Maybe not as a chaplain for a prison, but being in a prison in a chaplain role. Trying basically saying not not working on the states for the state uh, in that thing. Yeah. Because I think I think you're right. Like the the idea of being kind of like this rogue, um, religious person who shows up. Um, mm-hmm. And especially in in moments where it is kind of oftentimes you know some of the hardest or worst moments of a person's life, and to be able to I don't know it strikes me that that's the point where all the theology that we kind of learn in divinity school is simultaneously super useful, but also doesn't really really mean anything because you just right. have to kind of <laughs> be in that moment. But you also have to do you so you have this opportunity to kind of help 
uh, just shepherd somebody through, sit with them, walk, walk alongside them, whatever it is. But also like in my experience, like you have opportunities to gently correct maybe uh, mm-hmm. or, or bad theological takes, especially if stuff around like, why do bad things happen? Uh, and, and God must've done this to me to give me, you know, uh, character and stuff like that. So it's like, it always feels like this very scary, um, <laughs> but also inspiring type of thing, you know, where you all of us, you just don't know what you're walking into. So I, I always appreciate it for that reason as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think what you just brought up, the, the opportunity is to gently correct. That has been, I think, one of the most difficult balances to strike in doing chaplaincy is because you're in this, it's such a, it's such an in-between role. Like you're in between this role of like pastor and therapist. And, and a lot of the times you're ministering to people that you might only see once or twice. And, and it's so hard sometimes to know when correction is appropriate and, and when it isn't. And I think especially I was having this conversation with, with Emily, my fiance the other day, I think in our society, we, in this like liberal mindset, we have this idea that like, you're not supposed to challenge people's religious beliefs because it's their religious belief. And so if you say like, that's just my religious belief, then you're safe and no one can, no one can uh, say that's actually a bad religious belief. (laughs) Even though (laughs) I think there are definitely some objectively bad beliefs and it's, so it's really hard to overcome that mindset that I think is kind of ingrained into a lot of us. And then also, like you said, to be in a position where you are oftentimes talking to someone who is experiencing one of the worst moments of their life Um, and like weighing the pros and cons of like, what is this theological belief doing for this person or to this person in this moment? And what can I do in our like hour together to, to correct or like nudge in a different direction? And that, yeah, it's such a difficult balance. Well, and you, you run into the, Sorry, CJ. Now we've gotten into my wheelhouse. Uh, I, I promised myself I wasn't going to talk as much without without Isaac here. Uh, but no, but I, you get into that also. I, at least I did. I'll speak with an I statement. When I went through um, a CPE type of environment, I was like, oh shit, I finally can use all of this stuff that I'm learning. So I was just like, and I'm already extroverted. I'm already at a 10 most of the time. And so it's just like turning it up to 12. Be like, let me tell you about Jürgen Moltmann. It's like, no, they don't want to know about Jürgen Moltmann right. at this moment. Um, so anyway, it's just like, I think there is like, there's this, this super hard balance of just trying to be like, I want to use all this stuff I have. But also realizing, I think, I think it's hard, again, from a progressive mindset to realize that sometimes that good theology isn't necessarily the only thing that will be helpful or save somebody mm-hmm. in that moment. And so it's like, yeah. I think you put it and you nailed it when you said just trying to like figure out when do we actually do that and how do we do that? It's, man, it, it I don't know, it terrifies me just thinking about it. <laughs> I have to do CPE yeah. again coming up in, in the next year and I'm already just like, <laughs> oh man, I'm going to be so bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is absolutely where the rubber meets the road as far as like theological education. Um, and I, I think I've at this point really been annoying my my classmates in seminary because we'll be having all these abstract theological conversations in class, which is fun. I enjoy it. But also when I am just getting off of a shift on the suicide prevention lifeline, it takes everything in me not to be like, who cares? <laughs> like, what is this doing? Like, what is this telling people? How is this impacting our daily lived realities? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely given me a completely different lens for some of the more yeah abstract conversations that we like to have in academia. 
Yeah, I've been, I see some like theologian discourse on Twitter and I, I get very tired. I'm like, I don't care. And I'm like, well, crap, I'm going to divinity school. So I should probably start caring. Um, no, you don't. <laughs> You're going in knowing that is so helpful because I, I think, um, Caitlin, what you just said is exactly right. Like, it's like, it's, I, I've worked with teenagers basically my whole career. And it's like, I always say it's like having that stuff in the back pocket. So I have something rooted in what I'm actually saying them, but I don't need to bust out, you know, uh, historical theology to them or anything most of the time. If it informs right. how I kind of connect with them, that's the way. But, you know, if we start getting into too many, um, and we, we've done that on the podcast a couple of times, to be fair. But if we get, if you start getting too like outside of like how it connects to somebody that's either sitting in a pew or in a hospital bed, then it's just, I, I, I have no point, no, no use for it either. So. Uh, that, at least that's my, yeah. that's my, uh, that's my, uh, what do you call it? Uh, that's the way I might get out of jail free card when I uh, have bad theology. It's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a systematic theologian. I'm just here right. trying to help people. <laughs> and, and I think that it still obviously is uh, useful and necessary knowledge to have. I think just not for the reasons that people think it's going to be useful when they first begin going into ministry. Like, the times I have found a theological education useful is when when a kid says to me something like, you know, I think I'm gay, but my pastor said gay people go to hell. With my lived experience and background and theological education, that then tells me a hundred other things about this person's theology and lets you like connect all these dots and determine like, okay, I know this one belief that this person has that is causing anxiety and that can let me uh, make a pretty good guess at all of the other risk factors they might be experiencing, some of the other beliefs that might be trailing behind that one um, and what that looks like and how that informs. But yeah, like you said, it doesn't always look like, well, according to the universalists, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, your- a, it's an internal process and not not a process of preaching theology. Or it's like sure. what also happens too, and then CJ, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> uh, but what also happens too is you you have, and maybe this is just because I'm on Twitter too much, you do have like the Theo bro type of people who are all of a sudden like, well, that's a Pelagian viewpoint. Um, right. And it's not helpful. It's like, shut up, shut up. This kid came into your office because they're struggling with their pa- parents' divorce. They don't give a damn about you know, a Pelagian viewpoint. Anyway, sorry. I, right. I'm up in my feelings now. CJ, go ahead. <laughs> Brian's triggered. Just, I, Isaac's not even here. I'm about ready to rage quit there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I read a lot of spiritual memoirs because of who I am as a person. Um, and a lot of people who have gone to divinity school have to do CPE and like do chaplaincy in some form in hospitals. And a lot of times their experiences are like, this is so hard. I could never do this as a career. Like it completely shattered my faith in some way. And so I'm, I guess I'm just yeah. interested in how you came to like find that specific calling. Yeah, that is a great question. <laughs> so I think that, like you said, you've, uh, we've known each other from a distance since I was in college and college was a weird time for me. I attended a very conservative evangelical university. I'll name names, Spring Arbor University in Michigan. <laughs> and uh, at the time when I was there, I I came out to myself uh, around just before my junior year. And at the time knew a couple other queer folks on campus, but did not know anyone who was out on campus. One thing led to another and I became one of the only out queer folks on this campus. Uh, and a, a lot of bullshit happened my junior year. There was a very dramatic uh, and public 
harassment incident that took place that was targeted at a handful of queer students. And it kind of turned into the situation where it was the first time in a while that the university administration could no longer pretend that they didn't have any queer students uh, because this happened so publicly. And so, well, previously, uh, you know, the situation or the existence of queer people in general was kind of just something that was ignored and swept under the rug. This harassment incident took place and it led to a lot of really shitty emails being sent from administration, a lot of public declarations about the school's stance on LGBTQ people and relationships, which was obviously a really emotionally difficult time for all of the closeted students who who were attending this university. Um, And I was in this position of being one of the only out people uh, that most of these people knew of. And it kind of turned into the situation where I was suddenly the unofficial chaplain for all of the queer students on campus. I had uh, I had students coming to me where I was the, the first person they'd ever come out to and they didn't know what to do. They didn't know if they were going to be able to go back home to their family over the summer, all this stuff. And at the same time, I was also trying to kind of advocate for queer student rights on campus. And it was an extremely difficult time for me personally. And I kind of came to this realization where I was like, this advocacy work is killing me. I can't do it. I could barely eat. I was so anxious. The, you know, being in the the public eye during all of that, doing these interviews, doing these meetings was like, I, I can't do this. I can't stand it. And at the same time, realized that all of these one-on-one meetings that I was having with these queer students who had never gotten a chance to talk about these things before was like the one thing that was sustaining me throughout the process. And I was like, hmm, there might be something there. (laughs) The fact that those really difficult conversations were what was kind of, you know, giving me life during that time. I, uh, you know, as many folks in ministry do, tried to ignore that for a while. (laughs) When I, (laughs) I think when I made the decision to go to Vanderbilt uh, and get an MDiv degree, my thought was kind of a like, you know, after I have a fancy theological degree, then straight people will take me seriously. I'll be an academic theologian and it'll be great. And no one will be able to tell me that I am bad for being gay anymore. That doesn't work, by the way. Uh, <laughs> to, any, to any queer people considering seminary, uh, do it, but don't do it for that reason because it doesn't work. Um, and so I went into Vanderbilt kind of thinking like, I'm going to be an academic. Maybe I'll get a PhD after this. This is what I want to do. And then realized that uh, like you said, uh, CPE or, you know, a field education component was a requirement for this degree. And I sat down with a professor and talked about it. And uh, I had shared some of my past experiences with her. And she was like, I think you might be a chaplain. And I was like, no, <laughs> but did it anyway. And that was when I started my hospital chaplaincy experience. And I, it was such a fascinating learning curve and such a, a process of, like self-exploration, because I think the thing that I realized about myself in that process was that I was really bad and awkward at the calls that were like someone in the hospital for a minor wrist surgery who just wanted to to chat for a few minutes. That was really uncomfortable for me. I was like, okay, what do we talk about? I don't know. But when I moved into the burn ICU and the emergency room chaplaincy positions, I was like, oh, this is it. Um, And it's this process of realizing that like in those moments of crisis was when I felt like I had something to offer. And when I felt like I could 
stay calm and be that presence that people needed. And honestly, being at a point in my life when I was very unsure of my own theological beliefs and my own spirituality, I think uh, this is this is both a benefit and I think a challenge of chaplaincy. Um, but it kind of allowed me to be a bit of a, a spiritual chameleon for people. <laughs> I was like, I can speak the language of Christianity, but I'm not invested in you believing in it. I And so it was just this really unique space for me to be in where I realized that my personality and my belief system just made a lot of sense and and equipped me in really unique ways to to be a calming presence in those moments. So yeah, it's been uh, it's definitely a process of learning more more about myself and figuring out how my own spirituality fits into that, uh, which is difficult. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of what the beginning stages were like for me. I I love that story for a number of different reasons, but I, I love hearing call stories. And shout out to Vicki Matson if Vicki Matson was the professor that said yes. that. She, I love her. Uh, she, I would die for Vicki Matson yes. and I hope I get the opportunity one day. <laughs> See, I love this because now we can have this energy. We have the Vanderbilt energy instead of the constant Duke energy yeah. that's always always <laughs> in this podcast talking about a, uh, professors thrumming like a taut wire and all this other nonsense that Isaac brings. No, but I, I love hearing that because that's one of those, like one of those stories, like I, it seems like you didn't see, see it coming. And I, and I love that to me is like a, one of the more profound, like theological things I think that I can still say at times. It's just like, sometimes you can get wiped off your feet by this stuff. And, and that, that is risky, but it's also, that's kind of the place where I still find hope that you can have this moment born out of, um, you know, something that's less than ideal um, yeah. and, and become something that's beautiful. I, I mean, that's, that, that's resurrection right there. I, I, I don't want to go too far and get like evangelical preacher on oh, us. But, <laughs> but that's, that's when, I, when I hear that, I was just like, yes. And it's also, I mean, just to be personal for a second, when I think about my own daughter, um, who's grown up in a progressive kind of thing, to, to realize that there are people out there outside of her family and her, her priest um, who can, can inform her life in ways like that as well, uh, spiritually, where she yeah. might need it in a way that we can't bring it. So uh, kudos for all of that. I love it. Yeah. Th- thank you for sharing. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, I guess I'm interested because I also just know from your, your tweets and stuff that you have classmates in your chaplaincy mm-hmm. program or like groups that maybe have different approaches to chaplaincy <laughs> and theology than you do. And I'm, yeah, so what has navigating that been like? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so the CPE program that I did was with folks from outside Vanderbilt. And I think I had gotten really comfortable in the Vanderbilt bubble as <laughs> as you do. And uh, there are a lot of things that I would say in, in a VDS class and not think twice about that I suddenly was in this uh, this group of, of, yeah, older evangelicals who had a lot more experience than I had, but have been very much like in the world of evangelicalism for their entire chaplaincy career. And it was, it was really interesting. It was, it was good. I think it took me a minute to let it be good because religious trauma. (laughs) And I, and I think that that was also a really important moment for self-reflection was I realized like how difficult it is for me to, yeah, open up in those kinds of spaces and, and, uh, and let learning happen when I am, you know, trying to learn from and with folks who remind me of the churches that have, that have hurt me in the past, but it was, it was a really good experience there. They ended up being lovely people. (laughs) Um, 
yeah, the, it was, a. I think I, being at Vanderbilt, I had gotten used to not needing to, uh, explain the intersection of my identities. Um, and so now being in this context where suddenly, like, I, I think there's this difficulty when you're a queer person who grew up in, in non-affirming contexts where when you meet either non-queer Christians or when you meet queer folks who didn't grow up religious, you not only have to explain like the traumatic things that happened to you, but you have to explain why that was traumatic as well, which I think can be really exhausting. Um, yes. One of the weirdest experiences of my life was trying to explain growing up Christian um, on a date with a dude that like had no experience of it and did not understand like why <laughs> being a missionary was like traumatic to me. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Me and Emily, we have a roommate who is a lifelong, you know, LGBTQ affirming Lutheran. And every once in a while, we just like share a really batshit story from our evangelical uh, backgrounds just to like watch her face (laughs) react to it. And it's very fun. (laughs) She'll be like, you did what at church camp? (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think one of the biggest theological differences, maybe not, not even a theological difference, one of the biggest differences in an approach to ministry that I found in this particular group was this idea of what boundaries look like in ministry. And I think that this is a big problem, especially in CPE for a lot of reasons. Uh, You get a lot of folks in chaplaincy and in CPE uh, who either come to already with a martyr complex or who quickly develop one. (laughs) Um, And I think that that uh, isn't always made better by the fact that CPE is usually an unpaid uh, internship. So you're doing all of this emotionally difficult work for free. And it's, so it's easy to adopt kind of this like, you know, martyr mindset. And I, I remember having a few moments of conversation of talking about, I, I made some comments once about how, you know, just because you are a chaplain doesn't mean you have to put yourself in situations where you feel unsafe or uncomfortable. And all of my uh, classmates were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, oh, we need to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've been thinking about that a lot lately uh, because it is such an emotionally intense position to be in. And it does take a toll if you don't take care of yourself uh, very carefully. I was reading something earlier this week that I want to say was by uh, Pamela Cooper White. And if I'm wrong, then I apologize to Pamela Cooper White and also whoever actually did write it. But I'm pretty sure it was Cooper White, um, where she talks about how a lot of the times pastoral care providers do tend to see themselves as a martyr in in the sense of being someone who lays down their life or makes all these, you know, huge sacrifices for the sake of their work. And she talks about kind of making the shift away from that definition of martyr to the more literal one, which is martyr as a witness and, and what it looks like to stop seeing yourself as someone who is, you know, uh, making all these huge sacrifices and taking care of others to your own self-detriment instead kind of emphasizing that that witness identity as someone who is not here to make yourself small, but to also see and affirm and recognize the pain or the identities of others. And I think that that has been a really important shift in my own life um, because, you know, that, that Enneagram four wing, I too am prone to the <laughs> to the murder complex. But I think that that shift in language has been a really helpful one for me as I've been learning what self-care looks like throughout uh, throughout all of this. That's yeah, really cool. I, Go ahead, CJ. I, I think that's such an important point, uh, just like not even just in chaplaincy or CPE, but 
I mean, have, having done some sort of ordination, discernment and ordination process, although I didn't, obviously I didn't finish it. Um, I, I mean, I think that the processes of a lot of different denominations kind of reward that kind of thinking. Absolutely. Especially when you're talking about like calling where it's like, I don't, you know, the Lord is tracking me down like a hunter and I don't want this, but it's put upon me. Yeah. Oh, that's so real. And I think that that is, I, I mean, maybe not. Evangelicalism is just the context I'm most familiar with, but I think that that is especially prevalent in evangelical circles, this idea that like, God's going to call you to something and you're going to hate it. <laughs> and, you know, it's going to be this uh, sobbing at the altar moment of realizing that this is, you know, you're now you're crossed to bury. And I'm like, what if calling could actually be a very joyful process? How would that change things? Well, that's, that's, I mean, when I gave the shout out to Vicki Matson, that was kind of like the, the moment where I, at Vanderbilt, where it happened for me is like, I was at, I was at this place. I had no idea why I was there. I was, just, I had like, just all of a sudden felt like I needed to go do this and I had no clue. And um, the field education unit was all about kind of developing that sense of calling, not a sense of being put on, but like you said, witness, like how, how can you go out and serve in a non-martyr way. I mean, mm-hmm. well, I mean, maybe. But um, but how can you serve in a way that is kind of like you said, cluing into the gifts that you have and the interests that you have and where do those things kind of intersect that you can then find a place in the world to do that. Um, and that was one of the best things about divinity school for me was this idea that, because I think the flip side is I think there are a lot of usually white dudes who go in to seminary or divinity school and they think, well, I, this is my, I've known this is my calling since I was nine years old. And so they come mm-hmm. at it from this, like, it's not martyrdom. It's like, what would that be? It's like, um, I keep wanting to say elitism. It's that too. But it's uh, where they feel like they're um, entitlement. God, uh, <laughs> I stayed up too late watching a movie. Um, but they, they come in with an entitlement, which is like an, a weirdly like, it's it's like that it's the it's the horseshoe model right they're they're like i think those two people are really close together and so i think i love using calling language it freaks episcopalians out every time i use it but i think it's for this reason it's one of those things why we should be doing that is because i do think that people are called to things and i think a calling can be something very simple but it can also be something really huge um and that's again why i loved the story that you shared, because to me, that's that, that that is like a call story. That's a story of being like, I'm in this situation and here's a place where I can actually help and can and, and gifted in being able to help people that might need it. Uh, and maybe in ways that I didn't necessarily have. I'm projecting a little bit, but um, I, I, I love that. So use call language. I, I think it's don't let, I, I just hate when, when progressive Christians, now I'm like truly on a tear. But I hate yeah, you just progr- like made up a guy. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I did not make up that guy. You will meet, you're going to meet that guy when you go to, when you go to Duke. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, but I think like, now I forgot my point. You got me, you got me thinking that I made Sorry. up my, no. The but sentence I, that you started oh, was, I hate when progressive Christians. When, when we cede language and, and Christian theological topics to evangelicals, like we're not going to talk about that anymore. When we should be trying to grab that stuff and wrestle it away for the same reason of why we're talking, like don't let them have free reign on sin language or, or um, born again language. Like I don't, I don't, usually use either of those things that often, but I don't want them to have it. Like I'd rather us have it and, and use it in a way that's going to be helpful to people. Because um, I, I think born again language can be super powerful uh, if not used in the shitty ways that they use it. Anyway. Right. <laughs> got me all worked up now. I know, Brian. I didn't, I didn't even know what we were talking about. I'm fired up. I've got lots to say. We're going to fill this hour, no Brian problem. I was on one. I love <laughs> <I'm> it. On <laughs> one. <laughs> It doesn't take uh, much. <laughs> I don't know that I have a, a super elegant transition here, but I also wanted to talk about your um, thesis that you're finishing up. You said you're defending it soon. 
I just, well, I, you're going to have to like tell us like the title and the blurb about it. Cause I just remember when I saw the title that you like posted on Twitter, I was like, oh, super interesting. <laughs> well, let me see if I can pull it up to remember the title. Yes, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. So my thesis is titled The Calling of Queer Chaplaincy, uh, Intercommunal Responses to the U.S. AIDS Epidemic as Theological Models for Pastoral Care. And basically the thesis statement is that being a queer chaplain is weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I, like I said, even though I went into uh, VDS thinking I might become an academic, I am not an academic is what I learned. And uh, so I really thought of this thesis as kind of a love letter to queer folks in ministry um, in the most basic sense. But the the idea behind it is kind of that uh, folks who grew up in Christianity, and I would say even LGBTQ affirming Christianity, are still primed to distrust the the spiritual authority of queer people. You know, thanks to centuries of Christian anxiety around sexuality and queerphobic discourse. Um, and in my experience, that is something that is really easy to internalize. Um, I remember, especially at the hospital, uh, you know, in the middle of Tennessee, where, uh, you know, folks from all over the Bible Belt come to for, you know, urgent care and, and health care, uh, like the, the anxiety of like looking through someone's chart before going into their room for any clues about their denomination or any clues as to how they interacted with like their women health care providers or any clues as to like whether or not these people might accept spiritual care from a very gay looking woman. <laughs> um, and that, uh, and I think that because of that, and, and, you know, sometimes that ended up not being a problem at all. And other times I would have people say, you know, like in the most Southern polite way, they would like ask if there were any other chaplains that could be sent up, like before I could even have a conversation with them. And so I think because of that, it's very tempting as a queer pastoral care provider to see your own queerness as the barrier to care when in reality, the barrier is, you know, homophobia. Uh, so my, but my concern there is that like to kind of acquiesce to that idea that it is these non-normative identities that are the issue is to reinforce the issue itself. So it's, you know, placing the burden of assimilation on, on the care provider who in this instance is the victim of, of queer phobia. And instead of, assigning responsibility to uh, assigning the responsibility of progress to these religious institutions and individuals in them. So by like, by misidentifying this barrier as queerness instead of queer phobia, we're reinforcing the barrier itself. And what I think sucks about that is that it makes it really easy for queer folks who are in these fields to overlook the incredibly rich history that queer people have of caregiving. And so in my thesis, I kind of use some of the like intercommunal models of, of care that queer people uh, enacted during the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s as kind of a case study to look at the ways that I think queer folks are especially and uniquely equipped to practice pastoral care. And, and my hope in doing that is just that we can kind of uh, learn to celebrate that instead of getting stuck in these anxiety loops of, of doubting our own spiritual authority um, or bracing ourselves for the kinds of rejection we may or may not face. Uh, so yeah, I, I did that by looking a bit at, uh, I focused primarily on 
there's a group in San Diego in the early 80s called the Lesbian Blood Sisters who um, metal <laughs> badass. <laughs> uh, but at the, at the time, there was this misconception that like because they're statistically you know, less likely to contract the virus, there was this misconception that like lesbians couldn't get AIDS. And this is around the same time when gay men were either being strongly discouraged or completely barred from donating blood. Um, and there's this badass group of queer women in San Diego who basically rounded up like 200 lesbians to go donate blood to make up for the the sudden drop in, the, the, in, in supply that these blood banks were uh, were experiencing. Um, and in response to that, there was another group of gay men in the area who started a group called the Little Brothers. And so it was this really amazing example of of caring for each other's physical bodies in a really unique way, but also infused with that family language. And so one of the things that I focus on in this paper is this idea that like queer folks are uniquely equipped to learn to see strangers as family members. Um, A lot of the times that comes from experiencing rejection from our biological families, our families of origin and, you know, being forced to out of, uh, survival to kind of create new families from scratch with the, the people that we encounter as we, you know, go through our lives and, and go through our coming out journeys. Um, and I think there's also a sense there that uh, typically, obviously not always, but queer folks often are not born to queer parents. So our history isn't something that gets passed down like a, like a photo album would or a family history or, or these stories. And so instead it's something that we uh, kind of have to find in community, which I think is both a challenge and something that's really beautiful. But yeah, one of the ways that I've been thinking about that in terms of of chaplaincy is that I think that we are very practiced at uh, suddenly making a shift from seeing a stranger as a stranger to seeing them as a family member. One person I, uh, one of my favorite Episcopalians, Liz Edmond, who wrote uh, Queer Virtue, talks about this in terms of adoption and, and learning to identify a stranger as family and kind of claim them as as your own and as a way of saying that you're safe, which I think is that that promise of safety, I think is a really key component of chaplaincy, creating those environments where one can feel safe. And as, so I think we're very practiced at seeing someone who we've never interacted with before uh, come out of the closet as, as queer, as gay, as trans or anything and being like, oh, I, I didn't know you 10 minutes ago, but now that you've told me this thing about you, you're my family now, you're safe with me. And, and I think that uh, because queer folks are are primed to think in that in the, in those terms of adoption and safety, that we can also, in terms of pastoral care, kind of learn to to experience a similar shift with whoever we are providing care to, and to say like in this moment, though we did not know each other five minutes ago, well we are here in this room, you're my family, and this is what that is going to mean for our interaction. Yeah, that is. That's one of the one of the main points in my thesis. I can talk about that more, or or talk about some of the other things in there too. But that that component of chosen family and adoption is a big thing that has uh, informed a lot of how I, I have learned to uh, interact with the people that I provide care to, and also draw boundaries there as well. Yeah, that that's like one of the. I'm, I mean, I was like, you, you kind of blew my mind here because that's. Super beautiful, <laughs> eloquent as always, Brian. Uh, but you know, it was, I think that was really beautiful, and it, and it made the first thing I thought of. Yeah, of course, that's the the posture that people should walk into that relationship with. And then it made me immediately think of like, 
damn, what if Christianity, like what if Christians actually adopted that posture of like really believing in our baptismal vows and really believing in the fact that you're my sibling in Christ, right? Like we use that language all the time, but I don't think it ever gets put into that kind of uh, actual practice where it's being able to say, I don't know you, but we have this shared connection. And I don't, I don't want to port Christianity onto what you just said too much, because I think what you shared was very unique. And, and like I said, beautiful to me, but that's what it made me think of. It's like, how do you, this is where we have a lot of good words, but we don't have a lot of good action. Also, how is this not a book yet? This needs to be a book. Like I would <laughs> read the shit out of this book. So uh, all, all publishers and agents hit us up. We'll, we'll put you in contact. You're the one with all the connections. There, I know. Brian. Broadleaf books. Come on, let's, let's do this. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's hook this up. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I love that. I, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say because that, that was really wonderful. I, 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 you totally like gave my mind a 180, which happens a lot, but uh, in, in a really wonderful way. So thank you for that. Yeah, that was, I loved that. And I, I also, I mean, I wanted to talk about it because I knew you'd have incredible things to say. But I also think about that just, even just in our relationship, like we came out at about the same time, mm-hmm. I think, and literally we're, we are internet strangers in like the, the literal sense. Right. Like we're just random people on the internet, but we are now friends and like <laughs> we're having a conversation five years in the future because of that that found family idea of like, yeah. we're both gay people on the internet and Christians are being horrible to us. So <laughs> we need to <laughs> stick together. together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and no, I don't think that it is inappropriate at all to to put the language of Christianity onto that because I think that non-queer Christians have a, a lot to learn from queer people in that respect because the stakes have always been higher for us. Like, like I said, I think chosen family is such a source of joy and, and fulfillment, but I also think most of the time it's born out of a need for survival and a need to say like, we're experiencing rejection everywhere else. So you're my family now and we're in this together. Um, and yeah, I think that that is a very Christian concept and one that, yeah, I think folks have a lot to learn from, from queer people about. Yeah. I, 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 the reason I caveated was I just didn't want it to be like, you know, Oh, the straight white guy. Look, I'm going to take that. <laughs> no, I, hear you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I occupied that, that space here. Uh, often, so I try, try to know when I'm doing it, but uh, yeah, but I, I think you're exactly right. I just, I just wanted to put the caveat out there. So, so I don't get canceled. I want to get canceled. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I'm also like, so I've read a lot of books about the AIDS crisis uh, because I'm gay, I guess. <laughs> but and so I'm sure you already know a lot about this, Caitlin. Uh, but I'm just struck by like all of the organizations, not just like in California, but like there was one in New York, like the Gay Men's Health Crisis, and all of these, all of these groups in San Diego, in San Francisco, that were set up specifically so that gay men didn't have to die alone because mm-hmm. at the height of that fear of AIDS, which was, you know, so misunderstood and also <laughs> tinged with homophobia at every yeah. level. But uh, I just, I remember reading all of these books about the AIDS crisis and thinking like, this is a much more Christian response to uh, to someone dying in, in, in pain and like fear mm-hmm. than, than I think I've seen in a lot of... Uh, I just, I've been in a lot of Christian contexts and just that I've seen it in a lot of like training contexts for how Christians are supposed to react to death. Like these people were like, uh, these are our friends and we're not going to let them die alone because that's horrible. Right. And they would, you know, there were folks doing that when doctors were refusing to go into hospital rooms. And yeah, I, 
I get so many feelings about that when I think of, yeah, like I can't think of a more beautiful image of what chaplaincy is than when people ask me what chaplaincy means to me, I typically think of it in in the simplest terms as like making sure that people don't have to suffer by themselves. And that's what queer people were doing during the AIDS crisis, even when the people who were getting paid to take care of folks were not willing to do it. Yeah. uh, So I'm wondering, how did you get the idea? Like, was that just like you were also reading books and were like, I should, I should write a thesis on this? Or was it like a slow build over time? I think it it was a slow build. Yeah. I, I've been passionate for a while about giving folks the resources to know, to know about queer history, because like I said, I think that, and I still have I can't wait to be done with grad school and have time to actually sit down and just read books about queer history because I <laughs> love that stuff. But I think all the time about how much knowing our history and would and should be informing the way that we are looking at our current social issues. Um, and, and like I said, you know, because uh, our history is not something that gets passed down to us. I think that it's this really beautiful process of excavating it and, and learning from it. Um, yeah, I think of the idea, kind of what we were just talking about. I was, I think the, yeah, the documentary that got me interested in this topic specifically was uh, We Were Here on Netflix, which um, goes into a little bit of what we were talking about, about specifically um, the members of the lesbian communities who uh, previously had not experienced much like overlap or shared activism with gay men suddenly taking on these caregiver roles. Uh, and during this AIDS crisis. Um, and it was just the kind of thing that was impossible for me to watch without like making connections to my own calling. And uh, especially I think, you know, at the time I was doing hospital chaplaincy, which, um, I was seeing a very, I was going to say diverse, not too diverse. I was mostly, most of my patients that I was interacting with were straight white people, uh, older folks. Um, but as I shared before, you know, my, original introduction to realizing that pastoral care was probably going to be a thing that I was going to be doing for uh, the foreseeable future was when I was primarily caring for other members of the LGBTQ community and offering that care. And and, uh, obviously seeing that in a very different context in the AIDS crisis, a very different kind of of struggle, it it was just impossible for me to not see the connections. And I was like, I should write about this. Um, So that's kind of what got it going. And I've just always been uh, especially passionate about the theological concepts of of chosen family. I, every time I have to write a sermon, I, it accidentally ends up being about that. (laughs) And then as well as, uh, another, uh, really important piece that I kind of focused on this thesis was looking at the reaction of, um, one of the MCC churches in MCC France, France, Francisco, (laughs) San Francisco, um, which, uh, for folks who don't know, Metropolitan Community Church was uh, the church that was founded um, right after Stonewall. It was founded by queer people. For queer people, has always been affirming. And MCC San Francisco was instrumental in providing uh, care for AIDS victims in the 80s and 90s. Uh, they were one of the only churches in the area that was willing to do funerals for AIDS victims. Uh, one of the few organizations that was, you know, offering appropriate and affirming pastoral care for survivors. Um, but it was also like slowly losing their church 
through this process. People were dying. Their congregation had been basically cut in half because of AIDS-related deaths. Um, and they wrote, uh, the, the pastors of that church uh, wrote a beautiful article in the midst of this um, about what it means to be the church with AIDS. And the, the idea behind it is basically like, we are, we are the church with AIDS, but that does not mean we are a dying church. It means that we are living more fully in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is so beautiful about that is, you know, this is a time when queer people uh, were being stereotyped and criticized for like, you know, living like there's no tomorrow, uh, especially gay men being uh, stereotyped and criticized for uh, promiscuity or being drug users or like living as if there's no future. And now suddenly we're in this position where like, there might not be a tomorrow. We don't know if there's a future. How does that change our theology and pastoral care? And I think that it, it in my experience, like that, that kind of like here and now eschatology is so important for offering appropriate care to folks because chaplaincy is, is a ministry of presence. You have to be fully in the moment to, to be there for someone. And I also think that when we are doing pastoral care, uh, the afterlife or what happens after death is kind of the last thing we should be concerned about. (laughs) Um, this might be a really hot take. I don't really know. Uh, I'm kind of of the belief that it is extremely difficult. Do I want to say impossible? I don't know. How spicy <laughs> do I want to be today? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally to be a chaplain who believes in hell. <laughs> because I, I'm really rambling now, but this is my soapbox. So I'll keep going. Um, do it. <laughs> because I, I think that if you are approaching a pastoral care situation with the belief that like, having the correct belief sends you one place and having the incorrect belief sends you another place, then you're not going to be present in that moment with that person. You, uh, if you honestly believe that hell is a risk, you know, for someone who has the incorrect theological views, then your moral imperative in that instance is conversion and, and taking that person to believe the correct things, um, which makes you a bad chaplain. (laughs) And if you honestly believe that and don't do it, then in that, worldview that kind of makes you a bad person. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that uh, the the here and now eschatology that was so present in, in those churches who were saying like, um, our church is dying, so we are going to live like there's no tomorrow. We are not going to reject this idea of heaven, but we're going to like do whatever we can to relocate heaven into the current space that we occupy with the real physical people in front of us in this moment. And that is all we have to offer. That is all we can worry about. I think the lessons there are, uh, for me, have been instrumental in some of the really intense pastoral care situations I have found myself in where I'm like, I know there's nothing I can do to help this person's situation. There's nothing I can do to alleviate the suffering. There's nothing I can do to keep you alive. We are here together in your final moments and we are going to live fully in, in those moments together. Um, and I think that is a, a theology that you see really heavily in some of the like queer theology coming out of the AIDS crisis and something that has formed um, my ideas of what ministry of presence looks like as well. That was a lot at once. I apologize. No, that was that was awesome because it also it 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 minimizes the suffering that people are in in that moment, no matter what that suffering is. By saying that, well, if I'm not present to you, and you already said this, if I'm, if you're not present to that suffering because you think that your moral imperative is to make sure that they don't go to hell, 
It's like you're you're not. I wouldn't even say you're not a bad. You're not a bad. Uh, you're a bad chaplain. I would. I think you're a bad Christian or a bad person of faith at that point because we. Whatever. Anyway, that's that. That'll lead me down my my spicy take. And I, I'm trying to get ordained up in this uh, mess. So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going there. But I think. I think you're. I love the idea of like a chaplain can't believe in hell. Um. I, I, that that could. That's a, a title. That's book two in your contract. Uh, <laughs> chaplains don't believe in hell because I. I, I just love the idea of us having to be. Um, rooted in the moment of of whatever is happening right then, and I love how that's connected to to the work you've already done. So every week we get closer and closer to the cancelable opinion that won't get you worked. <laughs> <laughs> I got two years. I'm only in my first year. I got to get through this. Oh god, I need that collar. I need that. I, I've been. It's been too long waiting for it. So <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for. All of that. I mean, like, you're just saying so many things that I'm like, yes, yeah, I'm going to think so much more about this, (laughs) that I don't have a great response. But I also know that we're coming up on an hour. Um, So do we want to transition to a fight corner? Yeah, can I guess who it is? Oh, I was going to say, can I guess who the fight corner is? Oh, I mean, if you want. (laughs) Oh, I I, I don't have to. I was going to say the whole state of Arkansas, but uh, you can go with whoever you'd like. Uh, That's who deserves to be at least a part of that. We can come back to them later, but I'll, I'll turn it over to you for the actual fight corner. Caitlin, are you aware of the fight corner? I am not. <laughs> so you might want to so log off. Week, I like the sound of it. <laughs> every week, I invite a different person to fight me in the Chili's parking lot. Uh, previously, the Chili's in Keller, Texas, because that's my hometown. Although it's not where I live currently, uh, but I've recently, I've recently driven past the Chili's parking lot in Denton, Texas, and. Way worse vibes. So imagine all fights happening in the parking lot of the Denton Chili's. <laughs> no, that's really vivid. That, yeah, no, that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, just absolutely horrible vibes. I don't have like a great fight quarter this week just because there's there's so much. But yeah, the entire state of Arkansas, get bent. I mean, not everyone there, but every single state legislature legislator there, get bent meet me in the Chili's parking lot. I'll drive to the Applebee's in Little Rock that has a hell is real sign. <laughs> Just let them line up one after the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but in honor of uh, talking about the AIDS crisis in San Francisco, I think that the fight quarter this week needs to be Bishop Swing of the Episcopal Church, former mm-hmm. bishop. He is no longer a bishop. Born in Huntington, West Virginia, former bishop of the Diocese of California, which includes San Francisco. Listen, Bishop Swing, you can meet me in the Chili's parking lot. (laughs) And I, if you read Bishop Swing's Wikipedia page, because he does have a Wikipedia page, which is how I know he's from Huntington, West Virginia. um, It will say without much citation that he was... Uh, like a pioneer in LGBT rights in the AIDS crisis. Not the case. I mean, he gave like one sermon where he, in 1986, I want to say, where he was like, we shouldn't discriminate against gay people for having AIDS because people are dying, which is like the bare minimum. But it, you know, it doesn't mention on his Wikipedia page that in 1981, he was one of the loudest voices along with the Catholic archdiocese saying that um, this, the city of San Francisco should not allow domestic partnerships to be treated legally as marriage. So as the first uh, cases of AIDS were being discovered and the first AIDS deaths were happening in San Francisco, uh, the city was like, we should pass some legislation so that gay men who are together 
and our domestic partners, but like don't have any legal rights should maybe like get some rights so that they can be in the hospital visiting their family as they die. Uh, and the Council of Churches said no. And Bishop Swing was very loud. Uh, if you learn this, if you read And the Band Played On or several other books about AIDS that I don't, I'm not going to list here. <laughs> but anyway, Bishop Swing of the Episcopal Church, my church, meet me in the Chili's parking lot because I still don't forgive you. <laughs> Lots of bishops. Lots of bishops in the Chili's parking lot. Well, I, I, as I've tweeted, as, as Rod screenshotted and put in the blog, <laughs> no bishop formed against me shall prosper. Yeah. Man, I'm on his Wikipedia page right now. They really do use the word pioneer, huh? I I think what really annoys me about about this particular thing is that like the Episcopal Church is often painted as like this haven for queer people and like the only one of the only places where we can be ourselves. And there's just so much evidence that it was this was a very recent development and people that are still very influential in the church were like very recently being like, well. We think maybe you shouldn't like have rights. Like we think it's it's fine if you like are alive, but maybe you shouldn't be treated equally as everyone else. So I just get a little frustrated. NT right, NT right gets gets trotted out trotted out by every uh, um, like Episcopalian on Twitter as kind of like, oh, have you read this book? And that dude has said some really heinous shit about about uh, queer people. And it's just like, come on, like there, yeah, I, I we're in the Episcopal Church. People who listen to the show know why we're in the Episcopal Church because of my daughter and other things. And I love it for that reason. But it, there, it, to, to, to stand it up and say that it, it doesn't have those problems, is just, it's just short-sighted. And, and I don't know. It's, I, I actually didn't know anything about this. So I'm on, now on his Wikipedia page too. So um, yeah, I and, guess. you know, like I came in hot. I came in swinging, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I am glad that there was growth. And I'm, I'm glad that he later, like, uh, came around to the idea that gay people should not be discriminated against. Uh, so maybe I don't want to minimize that that journey for him since, you know, it was a different time or whatever. But also I'm still mad. That's fair. One of my uh, coping mechanisms is to edit homophobes Wikipedia pages with proper citations. <laughs> So maybe that'll be my next project. <laughs> You're gonna have plenty of time my, in four uh, months. My right? former university um, still has not uh, done anything to get rid of my edits. So incredible! It's a, it's a good read. <laughs> That's amazing. Shout out Spring Arbor University. <laughs> well, Caitlin, do you have anything that you want to plug before we wrap up? I don't think so. I, uh, if you really want to, you can follow me on Twitter. I wouldn't recommend it, but. <laughs> I am on the internet as at Caitlin J. Stout. If you feel like hearing more of this kind of bullshit along with lots of pictures of my pets. So yes, you have a very cute cat and dog. I love them. <laughs> well, I don't know that a lot of, well, a couple of takes couple were takes. revealed. Yeah, we had a couple takes. Yeah. Some of them, not all of them, but a couple of them were revealed. <laughs> Oh, before we go, uh, update on the first attempted cancellation. It didn't work, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> CJ out. <laughs> I am not canceled. At least not yet. Well, you'll have to show up next week to find out if it happens. But until well, then. <laughs> I mean, I think that that episode is, is well and truly over. And, you know, yeah, I don't want to get into the details. And I don't want to blow up my spot, but it's fine. Everything worked out. Well, thanks, Caitlin. This was awesome. I really appreciated it. Yeah, I loved this. Thank you all so much. 